It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, Dr. Stu, and my protege, Kimberly Durden. We're back for podcast number 108. You can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can reach Kimberly at kimberlydurden.com. And you can like us on iTunes. You can find us at drstupodcast.com. Email me again as askdrstu at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, Twitter. Is there anything else I'm missing? We're not, uh, on, we're not on Instagram. We're not on Vines. We're I, have not a, on I have a Facebook page, Kimberly Durden, IBCLC. So, I don't know. IBCLC. Don't you, yeah, don't you have a Facebook page, Birthing Instincts? Oh, I have Birthing Instincts. I have Birthing Instincts Families, which is a closed group. I have uh, Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN as yeah. my professional See page. there? It's a lot. Yeah, it's too much, actually. It's, <laughs> it's way too much. You know what? I wanted to say something before we got started. Uh, but months, we, already, we already got started. Months and months before you got started. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Months and months and months ago, you had two questions from some of your listeners. And I think it's so cool that your listeners will actually take the time to send an email. So I just wanted to, I don't have their names, but if you're one of those folks that listen to us all the time, then you'll know who you are. One of your listeners asked about my fertility. Oh, because you, you were 46. When we did because the podcast, I was 46. you were 46. I told I was 46 when I had my sixth kid, and that the, per- the listener wanted to know, said that we didn't mention if I used any fertility methods or if I used any, you know, assisted, what do you call it, assisted reproductive technologies. You, yeah, you, you did not. I you, did not. You did it did the old-fashioned way. That's going to say. You yes. had some assistance, but it wasn't from any technology. <laughs> so we'll clear that up. That's that. <laughs> and uh, You can tell us some details, though. <laughs> Uh, it was great. Did you lay upside down for 20 minutes afterwards? <laughs> well, did you, I can't remember. Did you pick the, time, the specific time of the month or did you, I like, did not. you look at your watch? I did not. You did I not? did not. Did you use the ovulation do, predictors? Did none of that. Nothing. Nothing. Just, Just you know. You know what? Uh, there's a midwife named, um, oh gosh, her name is escaping me, but she's amazing. She's been a midwife for a long, long time. Maybe it'll come back to me. That could be like but one she of tells me. <laughs> she tells me that, you know how you can tell when you're ovulating? When your partner looks good to you. So ah. I use that method. My partner looks so good to me. So basically, we look, we don't look good to our partners uh, for 27 and a half days out of the month? Yeah, you know, it's like they're kind of like getting on your nerves, and then all of a sudden they look really hot. That's how you can, you know, for a couple of days, that's how you can, you know, figure out that whether or not you're ovulating. So what I use that method. What happens if you birth control pills then? Well, you're if you're ovulating. on birth control, you're not trying to make a baby, right? So your partner never looks hot to you then? Dude. You know me. I'm just, I'm just being me. <laughs> I'm just letting you in on a little just, secret. See, I, you know what? I have, I have, I get it. I I'm get letting it. you in on a little secret. You should just catalog this, and then, you know, zip it. Okay? okay. Now you, now you know. Now the other thing is that one of your listeners wanted to know about a uh, website that I posted, and the reason why I wanted to bring this up because there's a lot of controversy around this website, and I'll be quick. But there's this website called Fed Is Best. And Stu, I talked to about this on one of the podcasts, and you should be into this because they are a trip, and this is right up your alley. Fed is Best is a website created by a doctor who unfortunately had uh, a baby who wasn't didn't feed well, and baby got very sick. And she created a website as kind of an indictment against the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative, which wants babies to be breastfed and wants to encourage all parents to breastfeed the, uh, their the babies. Milita- the militant breastfeeding group. Well, that's that. They're call they're the uh, Fed is best kind of is making the claim that um, uh, baby friendly hospitals are militant, like wanting yes, to be baby that's what friendly. I'm saying. Is militant. They're, they're over. They over the pendulum swing 
too far. Swing? Is that a word? Swang. <laughs> swing. Swing. <laughs> no, I don't know if that's a word. Swing. But, but the truth of the matter yeah, is, if you look at concept. if you look at baby friendly, you know, I don't want to get into it, but I want to say that one of your listeners wanted to know why I posted uh, Fed is Best as a resource. Um, because you're an IBL, IBL right? Blah, blah, but blah, blah, blah. but I, what I wanted to say, what I wanted to point out was, I wanted them to see the juxtaposition between all the information that's being presented out there, including what Fed is best is presenting. And there's been some scare tactic articles in some folks' opinion that Fed is best is putting out about babies dying because they haven't been supplemented with formula, and that we should not be against formula. So. Um, your 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 listener wanted to know why I added that website and and I just you know so so that you can see all the different opinions and voices and things that are out there. I'm not necessarily a proponent of the Fed is Best website. I get where they're trying to come from. I also am not a proponent of military mili, you know militant breastfeeding breastfeed or die. There is a place for formula. It is not inherently evil. I work with clients whose babies sometimes need formula. I'm happy that we have it available. I also appreciate donor milk when it's available. And I think that, you know, again, we need to have some balance and not be too far on one side or the other in terms of extreme. So I just wanted to say that. And then last but not least, um, I had a breastfeeding class, a prenatal breastfeeding class. I teach that every other month or so uh, for pregnant people and their families who want to know about breastfeeding before they have their babies, which is a great, 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 great time to learn. And somebody was in the class and they were so cool. This lady, her name is Kim, actually, and her partner, I can't remember her last name, but they came to my class and they wanted to know where were we we for the last four months because they hadn't heard a new podcast and this person had listened to every single podcast religiously I thought that was so cool I'm like seriously you listen to every 106 podcasts she's like yes and where is the I'm next sure she's one? not related to me <laughs> I think yeah that's what I, I asked her yeah. what was her last name Fishbine she's my mom reincarnated is that what she is <laughs> it was so cool though because I said oh you're like you're like the one person who's listened to all the podcasts well and you she, know they're fun to go back and listen to because they, some of them are, are dated but most of them are timeless most of them are, are fun, and, and we had fun. We, we had Brian, uh, my cohort, co-host Brian Whitman before, and, and he was he's a hilarious, funny guy. Uh, who would think, and then we had some other interim plays, and then we've had you now. And, you know, there's a lot of information in there mixed in with the humor and the sarcasm and the cynicism <laughs> that goes along with Dr. It was kind of cool, Stewart. though. I mean, you, but you do have, she said that you have a big following. How does she know? I don't know. She's yeah. a, she's like a she's like a fan. I mean, we can't even tell. <laughs> she, exactly. There's no way to know. You can't tell from clicks. You know, you can tell people click on your site, but you don't know if they actually listen to the podcast yeah. or not. Yeah. So it was really cool to so. see her, and she's going to be having a baby soon, and uh, and it was it was really nice. It was kind of weird. It's like okay. Well, along the lines of what you just said um, about having hearing both sides of the story, because you were talking about the breastfeeding yes. issue, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, some of the things that are being, you know, new publications that have come out, new papers that have come out that have been, you know, both pro and con for some of the issues that are, are dear to me, like yes. home birthing, VBAC, and breach. Yes. But before I do that, I have to write, an, uh, say, the epitaph for um, another failed Kings hockey season. <laughs> uh, 
You know, the by the time this podcast plays, this is where I put my fingers in my ears. Yeah. I don't, hey, things, come on, they're basketball. I could say baseball, the same thing about breastfeeding. Hockey, after a while. dude. Uh, how see, much can I listen to breastfeeding? What does that about? say about our OBs about, in this country? About cervical mucus. I mean, come on. <laughs> so listen. So I just have to say that it was a, a you know it was a strange season. We had some injuries, that sort of thing, and it was really sad. I was at the game where we we lost to Arizona and officially. Numerically, I hate everybody that hates math. I understand why because you made it clear that we couldn't possibly make the playoffs, and that was a sad uh, thing. And so the season has faded away, and now uh, I have to wait for October. But um, I, I will have to find something else to do. So I'm going to start now that the season's over. I'm going to start working on my paper, which I'm supposed to have been working on for the last few months. But as why we haven't done a podcast in the last few months, the same reason I haven't gotten out of my paper. I've been distracted. I've had uh, personal issues, yes, professional issues, sure. working, uh, traveling, uh, lots of stuff going on. So I've got to get this paper done. I've got a conference that I'm doing uh, by myself uh, called A Day with Dr. Stu. It's going to be in Boston. at the I think it's the Marriott in Boston on October 7th. Hey, that's cool. Um, and our friend Katie McCall is yes. sort of organizing this thing. And it's we, we actually went to the – she actually has done so much legwork – uh, she went to the University of Minnesota, which is my alma mater, and got, um, for a small fee, the, uh, we got CME approval. Excellent. Which is one of the reasons why we never get doctors to come to some of our talks right. is because doctors, you know, they first of all, they're not very interested, but certainly they're not interested if they're not going to get some right. of their necessary Credit. CMEs, sure. uh, continuing medical education credits. So we've got that, and they're going to do a day. I'm going to do about five or six lectures, and then we're going to do a hands-on breach uh, teaching session. That's amazing. And there'll be more about that coming up on my, you know, we'll talk about it on the podcast. It'll be posted on the website on on my, on my, uh, also. Who do you birth, expect? Who are you hoping instinct. to come? I mean. We're hoping to get people, uh, medical students, midwives, hopefully some physicians. Um, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I've been in communication with a physician. Some of the listeners may know him. His name's Neil Shaw. He is uh, a Harvard uh, trained physician who is looking at uh, innovations to try to make um, uh, birth better in the hospital mm -hmm. and very, very um, uh, uh, smart guy. Uh, he recently uh, had an article out about how they're trying to change the environment in the hospital, which they've always talked about trying to make the hospital more home-like. Home -like, right. And, you know, I have my questions about that. But right. ultimately, uh, he's doing good work. And I, one of the suggestions I, I, I wrote in one of the comments was that not only do we make the hospitals more home-like, but we need to make the physicians more midwife-like, yeah. <laughs> which, which is something where, you know, if you don't train the physicians to be trusting in birth, it doesn't matter what the surroundings look like. But anyway, so we're going we're gonna to do that. It's going to be a day we're going to talk about breach and twins and VBAC and home birthing, and uh, I'll, I'll have more about that. I also have done recently, uh, I did the Goldman Wifery uh, Conference of 2017. Right. Is that uh, like an online conference? It's an online conference. I did a lecture on breach. We have... I think five breach deliveries on video. Uh, it was awesome. It was a, one of the. It was a, a pleasure to do it, but it was a little difficult because I was acting like I'm speaking to a crowd, you know, an audience. <laughs> yeah. Except that I'm not speaking to anybody. I'm right. talking to my computer. Right. And then they put in the videos later on and stuff like that. So I, I don't even know. I haven't watched it myself, but some of the, my friends and colleagues have watched it, or some of my clients have watched it. They all said pretty good things about the information that's included in that. So you can find that, at, I think, at Goldman Wifery. Just Google Goldman Wifery. So you can access it any time. Yeah, there's a fee, I think. You yeah. have to pay for it. It's awesome. And then also, I just did the uh, uh, Better Birth 360, Nicholas Olau. He's a he's a licensed acupuncturist, uh, maybe a chiropractor down in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And he did like, there were like 30-some lectures with a lot of 
uh, I don't want to consider myself a luminary, but a lot of other luminaries in the in the world. I think Robin Lim and and uh, Ina May and and uh, is this was this a virtual too or? This was a, these were Skype interviews that yeah. are that were they were free I think during the month of March. Now you have to sign up, but you can Dang, find I that at it. Better Birth. Uh, oh, uh, Better Birth. Better Birth three hundred and sixty uh, World Conference. It's twenty seventeen. Again, okay. you can Google that. You can find information on that. We also talked about breach and home birth and that sort of thing. Excellent. So now, I mean, again, what I want to talk about today is a little bit more on along that line, and a couple of papers that came out. One. Uh, I have to say that the Cornell boys are at it again, if you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. The, uh, the, the home birth haters from Cornell, oh. uh, Amos Grunbaum and uh, Frank yeah. Chervenak. And they put oh. out an, uh, another paper based on the same data that they've been... They basically took data from a few years ago, and they've now published four or five papers on the same data. And I'm not sure exactly how that works, and I'm trying not to be too sarcastic, but... You know, you can, <laughs> if you take this... If it's garbage in, it's always garbage out, no matter what you do. And they don't seem to care that there's criticisms of their garbage and that they keep putting out papers based on flawed birth certificate data. And if people want to know why it's flawed, if they go to my website at birthinginstincts.com and, mm-hmm. and scroll down to the blog page, and if they scroll back to a year or two ago, maybe it was 2014, 2015, when they came out with some of their stuff, I actually uh, critically review um, the the papers that they're basing this all their, their anti-home birth papers on, and you can f- see the arguments for that. Oh, okay, cool. That's excellent. And it's important because if you, I mean, these guys are Cornell. Cornell is a big-time place, and they, you know, and they're often, whenever there's a paper, an uh, article or anything about home birthing, there's always, they're always reaching out to these two guys for quotes, and of course, they're always negative. And people need to understand where they're coming from, and they're coming from uh, data that's based, again, uh, a lot of flawed data, Mm-hmm. Um, well, what do you mean by flawed? So what's flawed well, about it? You know, they look at, they're looking at their initial paper that came out against home birthing looked at birth certificate records. Right. All right. And the birth certificate records that they looked at, they didn't exclude people who had unplanned home birth. Yeah, well, so they didn't, just, they, there's no way to know a lot of these birth certificate records because they didn't say that who was the practitioner at the birth. They don't right. say it was planned or unplanned. They don't say they, if the person had prenatal they care. They don't say if prenatal care. They don't say that there was a there was anybody uh, right. even attending the birth. Right. Um, they don't rule out for necessarily for stillbirths at home or anomalies right. at home. Right. And so when you start with that premise, you, you, you get skewed information. Now, I'm not saying that there may be greater risks for certain situations at home birth, but I think that they're way, way overplayed. And they just came out with another one saying that there are new, they want to put more restrictions on home birth now, more, you know, their their guidelines should be more restrictive. Such as? I, you know what? I mean, what could you restrict that further than you're already restricted? Over age 35. Oh, give me a break. Yeah, over age 35. What? Yeah, that would be one of them. There were three things specifically, and... Now, you know, I read it several weeks ago, and so I don't remember. I just wrote notes on it. But one of them was that women over 35 should not be having home births. <laughs> okay? And, and again, you know, this, again, I, I have to... But re- it has nothing to do with the health of the woman or the health of the No, baby. and I have to reiterate the 35 thing again. The 35 thing is an artificially false number. It has nothing to do with suddenly at 35 a woman's body right. changes. Exactly. And so many women carry around so much fear and you hear it constantly in their conversation. I've got to hurry up and get pregnant, find the one and, and have a baby because by the time I got to do it before I'm 35 or else, you know, they think like the most well, horrible thing is going to happen. Right. To and them you, and you ask baby. most physicians, if they ask them if a woman is 36, does that make her high risk? And they say yes. And then you, if you should ask them why. 
And, you know, you know, genetically, okay, there's a slight increased risk as you get older of having a genetic problem. But once that's ruled out. Right. And the age 35 thing actually came from, like, data from the 50s, 60s, and 70s where before the age of ultrasound, the risk of miscarriage from an amniocentesis was about 1 in 200. Mm. And the risk of Down syndrome at age 35 was 1 in 200. Hmm. So they're taking apples and oranges. Right. They have One has nothing to do with the other. Right. And they decided that... Well, we'll only do amnios in women over 35 because the risk of miscarrying a normal baby versus the risk of carrying an abnormal baby is whatever it is. It makes no sense whatsoever. No, they're, not, they're not the same thing. And that's where the age 35 came from. And now that even though the risk of an amnio, they don't even do much amnios anymore because right, we now because have, we have this NIPT testing, right. which is on the maternal blood. Um, we're still carrying this age 35 thing around. And, it, and the uterus doesn't suddenly change you know, like in in in, a, in Groundhog Day, when the clock ticks over and suddenly, you know, the everything's you know old and decrepit. Right, just, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It people. Just, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So this is the kind of things, and then and then they they um, of course they've said things like breach and twin deliveries are absolutely contraindicated. And VBACs, uh, VBAC right. was another thing that they said that should never be done at home. Wow. Now, of course, when you don't have choices in the local hospital, you're often forcing women to choose the possibility or the reasonable choice of an out-of-hospital VBAC or an out-of-hospital breach or twin delivery. They don't think it's reasonable, and I understand why they don't think it's reasonable, but the problem is is that there is no data to say that a home breach delivery is dangerous, all right? Because no one's ever looked at it, right. because no one's doing them right. other so than that's me. Right, so that's what you're going to be... Well, yeah, and, gonna and of course, on. my paper will not be statistically significant. Right, because you're only dealing Because I with... only have 50-some... Right home breach deliveries to w- from which right. to choose from. But I really want to put it out there so that at least there's there's some data out there that says right. if you have the skill right. and if you have no other choices, that this is an option, that here's the outcomes of this sort of an option right. and put it out there. But for the, they just stand on their pedestal and they say that, that you can't do these things and they're just saying it because that's what their consensus opinion is. And what kind of consensus opinion would you expect from someone who doesn't like home birth and doesn't do breach delivery? Exactly. Well, it's their paradigm that they're operating out of, and they're not willing to... It's not going to serve them to look at things broadly. They're going to serve their interests. So, I mean, it's. I'm not surprised, but unfortunately, it's, it's, it's really horrible to think that they're still... And the other thing that I question is, why all the focus on home birth? Is home birth, are home birth rates rising so much? I mean, is that what's happening? Is it the fear of all these folks getting more educated about birth options that's making these folks feel, you know, there's a, there's somebody wants these papers, somebody wants this data. I think it's because they're making a living doing this. I think it's because they found their niche. Yeah, but why this subject? How many home births are there in the United States? It doesn't matter. These guys are famous for being anti-home birth now. They're called upon, they've got their, 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 their glory they probably believe they're doing the right thing um why you know i don't know that home birth is that much in the literature it just happens to be something that you and i notice because it's it's how we make a living so maybe we're putting too much emphasis on it as well um but i do believe that that you know the motives from them are not necessarily pure (laughs) all right they're just not and speaking of not pure motives um we did a podcast i think it was podcast 106 where we had some good news about the about a possible breach program being developed at right. California Hospital. Yeah. Well, you know, we haven't spoken in four months, and uh, guess happened? what's happening? They don't tell me they shut it down. Corporate shut it down. What? Yep. 
But I know that one of the doctors there was actually doing breach, actually doing breach deliveries. Yeah, Dr. Chavira, our friend, and Dr. Pickett, who's the chairman of the department. Okay, what happened? We're committed. We're committed to doing it, and I don't know. Again, I only know third hand, and of course, uh, the inner workings of hospitals I never know. But apparently, somebody from uh, corporate, whether it was an administrative person or whether it was a uh, maternal fetal medicine doctor in the corporate world, just said, "Nope, not doing that." And they overruled them, and it's on complete hold. You can't do an elective breach delivery at California Hospital now. If you come in and the butt's sticking out of the vagina, they'll they'll help you. And they have skilled people, some skilled people there to know how to do it. So that's just one less choice we have that's now. Of course, they banned sad. Dr. Wu recently in Glendale. Right. We had a big thing about that last right. year. Uh, so now we have, I don't know, any hospitals. Now, I did get a I did get a post recently. Let me find my phone. Well, who was it? Was the, there isn't there a doctor at Cedars that's doing breach? Yeah, Barry Brock has been doing breach deliveries, but he's only one guy, and right. was, you know he's not on. But apparently, there's a group down in. Um, let me find it on Facebook here. Down uh, with Dr. Chan and his group, in. Um, let me see if I can find it. Dr. Chan is a physician in uh, in I think he's in the South Bay, but hang on a second, I'm going to pull it up. Okay. So, so yeah, because I had seen that there was a couple of breach, several breach deliveries um, in the last several months um, coming out of California Hospital, and I was fe- thinking, this is amazing. Like, folks have options, especially California Hospital accepts Medi- uh, Medicaid or Medi-Cal or whatever it is, and, you know, like, fantastic, we have options now. So now you're telling me that it's being, it's it's been pulled, and it's really sad to hear. Yeah. Um yeah, let's see. I'm trying to find it, and I can't really find it. But if I if I can't, I will talk about it at their next conference. But there's a group. Oh, here it is. Rita Shurlick, Rita Shurtick, um posted this on uh, Coalition for Breach Burst, the Facebook group, and she okay. says, "Breach vaginal deliveries are being done at Long Beach Memorial by Dr. Chan and his group, Obstetrics with an X Medical Group. He will try a version first and prefers a previous Vertex vaginal birth." So in other words, he'd rather do it in multips and primips, right. which a lot of guys will. But I'm not saying that he. W- it doesn't say that he won't. I met him at an OB dinner in Long Beach. Most OBs in the group are all the same. They also have a female OB. So there's there is that choice. I have to make That's a. Fantastic. I have to make a, a lunch meeting with this guy. Got to get to know who he is. Fantastic. But uh, kudos to Dr. Chan and Obstetrics Medical Group down in Long Beach. For and doing I wonder that. how long how how long have they been doing it? Do you have any idea? No, but it was just posted on Thursday, so it was uh, just posted a couple days ago. You know, it it seems like there's like these folks, these little pockets, these kind of almost underground folks that are doing that have been doing breach delivery. But it, it, we get the party line that nobody is doing it. Yeah, there's a guy in San Diego that does him named Doctor Vu. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get I get requests often uh, from around the country from breach moms and twin moms who are in a community that they they don't have anybody that they know what to do. They're asking me if I, do I, in my large network, know people. Right. And I, and I do encourage people to email me uh, uh, through the um, uh, birthinginstincts.com website or ask Dr. Stu, and I will get my network working on it. I just heard from somebody from Baltimore this morning, and I connected them with a midwife I know in Baltimore. I don't know anybody in Baltimore that's doing uh, doing twin deliveries. Right. Um, that are not restrictive. She wanted to have one where she could move about and do the things, and they all want her to be in the OR, right. and the b- baby B will be immediately extracted after baby A comes out, right. and you have to be in stirrups, and you have to have an epidural, and oh my all that stuff. So I, I don't know that there's any help for her in Baltimore. Right. I know that we've had some people, it's not for everybody, certainly it's disruptive to people's lives, but we have had people 
come out here and rent an apartment in the last month of their pregnancy and and have a breech birth here in L.A. with our team. Wow. But that's not that's certainly not, not an ideal, ideal thing. Not ideal for everybody. Yeah. So I don't know why the world seems to be going upside down. It seems like when there's... And we're going to talk about the positives right now, about the Sheffield Conference and about about other things that are going on that are good for breach. Yes. Um, the world is trying to come up with these things, and yet, at the same time, that there's more information coming out that the risks are probably less than we thought. Right. Um, more and more hospitals are, are banning them, and you just think that that it would start to turn the other way, and it's actually going further into restriction. Well, hopefully, I think... I think one of the things that you mentioned that needs to be done is uh, some sort of national um, network of practitioners that are doing breach deliveries. And in my opinion, you guys, all everybody needs to know each other. Y'all need to get together, create a some sort of um, conference or something. Well, we do of, have them, and that's what know? the Sheffield Conference was about. And so is that is that Rita, the same person that you just mentioned? No, Rita, I'm, I'm, I don't think, I think Rita's just a, a breach yeah. advocate. Yeah, be, but I think that, that there's power in numbers and the, the, there has to get, we have to get some more information and some more um, studies on the safety or... Right, well, again, Facebook groups like Coalition for Breach Birth or Breach Birth UK or Breach Birth Australia, New Zealand, uh, depending where you are in the world listening to this podcast, you, you do have resources. You just use Facebook, you go on, you say, I'm exactly. breach, I'm 36 weeks, um, I live in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. Anybody know anybody? And you'll get responses, and that's one way to do it, at least for a start. Yes. And then conferences where we're reteaching the breach, but even the problem with these conferences, and they admit them openly, even though the data they're presenting is is supportive of you know properly selected breach delivery and well trained hands. But even if you did them, it's hard. It's going to be very hard for any residency program to get enough breach bursts anymore right. to allow someone to come out feeling confident and skilled. Right. We also, not only has breach banning been going on, but of course there was just a protest a couple weeks ago up in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. uh, against Cottage Hospital because of their VBAC ban. And They and still haven't overturned that ban. No, and there's, and there's more and more information coming out about it, even from from all the organizations, uh, the NIH, the ACOG, everybody else, are putting out stuff saying that VBAC is a reasonable choice and that hospitals should not be limited by the fact that they don't, you know, that they're worried about uterine rupture. Because if you put everything else in perspective, that it's it's actually quite a low risk compared to many of the other things that go on in labor and delivery. But they don't seem to care. They just don't seem to care. And women from Santa Barbara, I just assisted a woman having a VBAC. She drove to Ventura. I, I did it at a birth center with her in Ventura. Wow. Because she didn't want to be, if she had to be transported for any reason in labor, she didn't want to have to go to Cottage hospital. hospital and get yelled at and get and get the the right. evil eye mm, mm, from mm. the nurse ratchets and the other people there. That that you know, actually, the nurses there, they they all understand that that the ban is not really ethical, but they have no power. They don't have any way to, to fight against it. Right, like like the guys at California Hospital with their breach, they wanted to do it. They've got the skill. They wanted to set it up. They wanted to bring Doctor Wu over. And, oh and then corporate just nixed the whole thing. Unbelievable. Okay. So let's talk a little bit while we can. Uh, the last thing I want to do is, I, oh, I wanted, to, I wanted to do one other thing, a little bit of Dr. Stu cynicism here. Uh-oh. Um, there was a study that I posted on my Dr. Stuart Fishbein Facebook page that looked at IV fluid uh, treatment for women in labor and found that the normal rate of IV fluid in, uh, in labor uh, for a woman is 125 cc's an hour. Okay. And they found that if they gave women more fluid, which we used to think would slow down labor, 
because you overhydrate them, it slows things down. But they found that they gave women 250 cc's an hour that they actually delivered uh, in, I think, 60 to 90 minutes sooner than women who only got 125 cc's an hour. And they were all excited about this news, and they're saying, now we should give women IVs and we should give them more fluid. And, of course, my, my, my little cynical remark was, did they have a control group where they gave them oral, yeah. oral fluid? Oral fluids. Let right. them drink as much as yeah, they want. Let them drink as much and as they want. And maybe even eat. And, and see if there's any difference. But no, it would never occur to researchers to not have an IV. I mean, it wasn't mentioned, it wasn't even mentioned in the, in the article about uh, comparing it to it was either intervention or more intervention. Oh, my God. That so, is so uh, th- sad. This is the kind of thinking that we have to deal with sometimes in my profession. And I would love to not be sarcastic about it. I would love to not be cynical about it. I would love to have a conversation with the people who do this sort of thing. But they don't want to have conversations with with those of us who may have alternative ways of doing things. You know, it's interesting because I remember... It's back to that dialogue thing you talked about. I remember going to a conference, speaking at a breastfeeding conference some years ago in San Diego, and a very wonderful, progressive um, pediatrician named Linda White, W-I-G-H-T, invited me down several times to speak. And she was awesome, and I really enjoyed her presentation. And then... In her presentation, she started talking about um, how challenging it could it can be for some babies to transition to extrauterine life um, after they're born, and she talked about um, she talked about it in the paradigm of immediate cord cutting, and and as she was talking and she's talking about how it's hard for these babies to transition and da 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 da, da or something she was saying was just really interesting. What stood out to me was. In my paradigm, we don't do immediate core cutting, and these are the reasons why. And had they thought about looking at babies transitioning from a different perspective, what happens if you don't cut the cord right away? Does that make a difference? And it really, she never thought about it, right. because all they, all it has ever, what how she was trained, and all that's ever done is babies' cord gets cut right after birth. So that, so sudden, for some reason, that's considered just normal. And then if the baby has a hard time, they don't even look at the fact that maybe one of the things that's making it difficult for that baby to transition is the fact that they don't have their cord, their life support, i.e. their cord still attached to the uh, placenta that's pulsing blood. And and there, if we leave it there in our belief system, we leave it there, we're going to give that baby a little bit of extra protection as they transition to extra uterine life. And it really just, it was like, Oh, I never thought about that. And that's what, you know, that's what I hear when you're talking about these IV studies. Like they did not think like what would it what if we just let women just eat and drink? Yeah. And there's no IV and we study that against pushing more IV fluids. I'm kind of dumbfounded right now. I'm going to be thinking about this the rest of the day. It's it's disturbing. <laughs> it's so well, disturbing. I'm sorry to disturb you, but here's some po- <laughs> here's some here's some I'm going to throw out some um some facts here that maybe seem disconnected, and I'll try to connect them all at the end. But this is from my dear friend, Rixa Freeze. Everybody uh, should know her. She writes a blog called Stand and Deliver, and you can find her oh, at okay. R-I-X-A, R-I-X-A dot blogspot.com. Okay. And uh, she attended the Sheffield Breach Conference, and so did our, our friend, Dr. Chavira, uh, along with my friend, Betty Ann Davis from Ottawa, and, and all the luminaries that I love so much. I was sort of had been done traveling from Vietnam and Barcelona and had births and I couldn't get to Sheffield. Uh, I just like going because I, it makes me feel so good to be surrounded by these people. But I didn't get to go to this one. But Rixa, every time that they have one of these conferences, she goes and she summarizes. She takes notes 
and she summarizes every lecture. So you can go on her website oh, and wow. you can read the pearls Wonderful. of wisdom that occur from every lecture there. And I just want to go through one yes. because uh, it made me feel like I was there. And I think I wanted to share some of the wisdom here. And this is from a, a physician named Lawrence Impey, I-M-P-A-Y. He's a fellow of the Royal College of OBGYN. And he was instrumental in the recent uh, Royal College of OBGYN 2017 uh, breach guidelines that came out. Okay. Which were, again, very similar to the ACOG guidelines, very supportive of things, looking at different levels of evidence, but also saying that properly selected breach deliveries, well-trained hands, the usual thing, um, makes sense. But they they also made some recommendations that some of the anti-breach people thought were very controversial, and that's because he believes that people don't look at statistics the same way. They don't really understand the difference between relative risk mm -hmm. and absolute risk. Mm -hmm. They look more in the immediate outcome versus long-term outcome mm -hmm. versus the outcome of this pregnancy versus outcomes of subsequent pregnancies and the reflection on that. And so I want to I uh, just highlight some of the excerpts from this sort of thing. Obviously, I would recommend everybody go to Rick's, uh, Rick's blog at uh, Stand and Deliver mm -hmm. and read uh, this one as among some of the other great lectures that I'm sure that will be posted up there as she gets her little fingers busy typing <laughs> away. But she, he says, the b debate over safety, many different outcomes matter. Some are short-term, some are long-term. His, his presentation covered six main outcomes. Okay. They are one, this baby, mm -hmm. death, this baby, morbidity, the mother this time, the next baby, mm -hmm. the mother next time, and other people's babies. Hmm. And to summarize, he spent most of his time on this baby's death because perinatal mortality is the thing that people always keep quoting. And they keep quoting the relative risk is four times higher or three times higher of a neonatal death in a breech delivery vaginally than by cesarean section, all right? He also talks about letting people, you know, there was this thing in ACOG last year which everybody sort of poo-pooed, but I think they were serious about where they had this mock debate that every woman should be delivered at 39 weeks. She right. should be induced or sectioned right. at 39 weeks right. because you'll lower the risk of stillbirth. Right. As if stillbirth is the only thing that matters because right. the stillbirth rate does rise, but it rises, the, the actual risk is still quite small. Right. But he says that we're looking at the numbers all wrong. Mm -hmm. And he says, the reason he says that, he said, he gave this analogy. He said, he noted that the longer you drive, the more likely you are to be killed on the motorway. Hmm. The same is true for pregnancy. The longer you are pregnant, the more likely you will have a stillbirth. If you simply end all pregnancies at 39 weeks, you aren't exposing any babies to the risk of stillbirth beyond 39 weeks. All right? So, yes, that makes sense. But if you're only outcome is that, right. then that justifies the 39-week thing. Right. But that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Because you're, you're, you're going you're to interfere with everything else over something that's a very small number. Exactly. He also said, um, and again, this was a little confusing for me, but he also said that, that when you look at the risk of stillbirth at 42 weeks, you, you, you're adding in all the risks that went up to that point, and the risk really isn't that much different at 42 weeks than at 39 weeks, but you've added right. in all these extra babies. Got it. All right. So I don't think I said that very well. but No, but I totally get what you're saying. So basically you're adding in all the other risks that are, um, are get higher as the pregnancy continues. Right. And so the number, the number gets higher theoretically as far as the, the risk. Simply because you've been, on the dr you've been driving your right. car longer. It doesn't necessarily mean that your individual baby 
his is at that higher risk of stillbirth. That's correct. It's the, it, because we're not looking at individuals. We're looking. We're grouping and lumping everything together, and then basing making decisions for individuals based on this huge generalization or you know general information right. that I mean, we have. Again, what he's saying is in, in one analogy would be that if I were driving five minutes away, I'm less likely to be killed on the motorway than if I'm driving to Chicago. Right. So you should just only drive, make five minute drives. Right. Right. Which doesn't make any sense. Right. You should just make five minute <laughs> drives every other day or something like that. And then you'll get to Chicago in two years. But it totally, All I right. mean, it is, go ahead, carry right. on. So anyway, so he looks at, he basically looked at three major studies, um, he didn't spend a lot of time on the term breach trial because he basically agrees that that the problems with the term breach trial are paramount and and you know basically he said um, that in the term breach trial, 31% of the babies had no prenatal ultrasound when having a flexed head was part of the protocol. Right. So in 31% of the time, they had no idea whether they did. They said 13 of the babies had no obstetrician in attendance. Huh? 13%. Fetal monitoring was rare. Prolonged second stages were allowed. And 10.6% of the babies fell outside the recommended weight range. And these are only some of the morbidities of, um, that were included in the term breach trial that were, never, that, were, that were flaws. So in other words, they didn't take those babies out. No. They just they didn't take anomalies. Everybody. They didn't take anomalies out. They didn't play planned or unplanned. They didn't do any of that stuff. That is correct. All right. So he looked at uh, three studies, and I won't go through them now, but you can look at them up there, and found out that... Um, the grade C recommendation, which is you know based on mo- mostly consensus opinion but intelligent opinion, uh, at the, in the Royal College guidelines, put the risk of perinatal mortality uh, at 0.5 per thousand with cesarean section, or basically one in two thousand at 39 weeks, and two in a thousand after vaginal breech birth, and one in a thousand after planned cephalic birth. So in other words. The, the risk of having a neonatal mortality is twice as high in a v- vertex presentation than it is having a C-section. All right. So, so does that? So we should sec- I mean, we shouldn't let any head shouldn't let any headfirst babies deliver vaginally either. All right? right. So that's what he says. He says this bears repeating: planned vaginal birth for a head down baby, head down baby, is twice as dangerous as elective cesarean section at 39 weeks. Looking only at perinatal mortality. But there is no guideline telling women with head-down babies that vaginal birth is too dangerous. Um, so we have to remember this when we're looking at breach exactly. data. Exactly. Exactly. It, it may be tw- it may be four times higher or three times higher with breach, but it's only minimally higher than it would be with a head-down, right, vaginal birth of a of a head-down baby. Right. All right. So um, the 2017 guidelines counseled that. Uh, clinicians should counsel women in an unbiased way that ensures a proper understanding of the absolute as well as the relative risk of their different opinions. Or just, excuse me, different options. Just saying that vaginal breech birth is four times more dangerous than an elective cesarean risk is misleading and yes. doesn't put the numbers in context. All it right? is very misleading. Um, so that and, and that that four times higher, however you state it, is based on the term breech trial, term breech uh, study that you talked about is is that number coming from no that they, no study? they were they, they thought it was they listed the term breach trial listed the, the risk as being ten times or more higher oh my goodness okay and the promoter study actually found no increased risk um, which was a, a com- combination study but because for the sake of time I'm just going to move on because we're really running over here today um, so they want to talk about the mother in in this pregnancy <laughs> and. The term emergency cesarean section is the lingo that's used for any woman that's laboring with a breach who ends up getting a C-section. 
the, it's a it's a misnomer, yeah. but that's the term. That's how the language is used. Mm. So when the term emergency comes up, don't think of it as uh, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. It's right. just that they've labor has failed and they need to have a C-section. Um, they said in the term breach trial, thirty six point one percent of mothers had in labor cesareans, twenty nine percent in the Promota study. Okay. Um, So they, they said if a, if a mom has a 95% chance of needing a C-section based on your estimation, based on your uh, you know, predictions ahead of time, then the best plan would be to recommend a C-section. However, a mom with a low chance of needing a C-section, the best thing is to recommend a vaginal breech birth. Um, taking all that into account, it's still slightly safer for a mother to plan a vaginal breech birth than to plan a cesarean for a breech baby for the mother. Well, that's the thing I was going to ask you when you're, with your first thing that you read was they were talking about perinatal mortality or morbidity, but there's there's also the mother. Yes, although, we're, again, that's, those are also small numbers. Yes. But if a mother is planning to, and I'll, and I'll just summarize the rest, if a mother is planning to have more children, right. then with the second baby, you now increase the risk right. to, of that second baby to greater than the risk of the first baby having a vaginal breech birth. Exactly. All right, again, small numbers, but if we're going to use the numbers in a way to convince people to, to have a C-section, then we've got to be honest about it. And, do, and how many times does a woman go into her OB and the OB help her figure out her risk for a C-section or vaginal breech birth or whatever based on how many more children she wants to have because they never ask that question. That, you know because to me that's just that's one of the things with reducing the primary c-section rate which is a big uh push from certain organizations um that i've mentioned before and i actually should ask give renee the uh, link so because i can't think of it right now but you know well acog says that or prime right acog is saying that yes now yeah and because of the risk in for future pregnancies future labors um other risks that accumulate once you've had a c-section or more than one c-section and you know it's 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 challenging okay so the last thing i want to talk about specifically is is the last thing that i mentioned of his, of the six things he mentioned was other people's babies so yeah. what does he what mean does by that, mean? that yeah what does he mean by that okay so uh, dr lawrence some, or mr Lor uh, mr actually it's not doctor it's it's um um well, his first name is Lawrence. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> his last name. Sorry, sorry, Lawrence. Um, he sometimes jokes with, with total sincerity, quote, I want you to have a vaginal breech birth because I need the practice, unquote. <laughs> now, other people's babies are tremendously important, and needing practice is a very reasonable reason to promote vaginal breech birth. In the term breech trial, low perinatal mortality rates, countries like the United States, had twice the morbidity during planned vaginal breech birth than countries with high perinatal mortality rates, okay? Right. But you'd ask yourself, why is that? Well, it's pretty obvious why that is. Because they're getting more practice in other countries. It's because of the providers in low perinatal mortality rate countries were less skilled. Right. They didn't have the training. Exactly. And in the, in the United Kingdom today, he says one-third of all term breaches are still undiagnosed when labor begins. Interesting. Well, that's not uncommon here either. Really? With all the ultrasound that we well, do? but it's you're talking about term. You're not talking about twins. You're not talking about missing twins. You're talking about a breach. It could have been head down last week. Comes okay. in this week in labor, and it's okay. All right, so it's one third. We're talking about one third of four percent, which is a small number. Okay. Okay. Um, Oxford, where he teaches, has a high rate of undiagnosed breach birth. In fact, last year his unit had lost three undiagnosed breaches who died on the highway en route to the hospital. 
Providers today don't know what to do for undiagnosed breech babies. Mm -hmm. In Oxford, half of them are not diagnosed until full dilation. We need to be able to do vaginal breech birth for these one-third of all breech babies. This argument is a very, very strong one, Lawrence noted. So ultimately, whether you believe in breech birth or not believe in breech birth, the idea that I've said this like a broken record, the training... The training um, for breech birth is something that has to be done. Just Absolutely. like the training for shoulder dystocia That's right. is done so that doctors know how to deal with it when it happens. We need to be training doctors so that when the baby's butt is sticking out or a foot sticks out of the vagina, they're not panicking and trying to then crash a C-section. Push the baby back up inside. You know, Just let the baby come out. If you know the skills, you know the maneuvers, you can do this sort of thing, Kimberly. I think that's an excellent way. All right, to so that's going to be the end of today's podcast. <laughs> you know, it's really good to be back with you. Uh, I hope that we'll kind of keep a regular schedule for our listeners, like Kim, the other, the other Kim. Yeah, the other Kim. This has been podcast number one hundred and eight. Again, you're listening to Doctor Stu's podcast. You can find us at Facebook, at Doctor Stu's podcast, uh, or at drstuespodcast.com. I'm at uh, askdrstu at gmail.com. Kimberly's at kimberlydurden.com. Uh, it's really a pleasure talking to you guys and we love your feedback and all those millions of listeners that Kimberly says (laughs) I have. Uh, Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.